The projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, a podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 15, My Pal Hal, in which film collector and prior guest Jim Reed joins me to talk to today's guest about one of the pioneers of screen comedy. What a beautiful morning. Turn on the radio and let's have some music. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. As I mentioned, my friend Jim Reed, who was my guest a couple of episodes back, comes aboard today as co-host or maybe color commentator. We haven't really sorted out the job description. Anyhow, our guest is Craig Coleman, a gentleman who formed a unique friendship with legendary producer Hal Roach during the last years of his life, which resulted in Craig's book, 100 Years of Brodies with Hal Roach, The Jaunty Journeys of a Hollywood Motion Picture and Television Pioneer. Jim, it's good to have you back. And Craig, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you, Bill. I, I appreciate your inviting me. Now then, people with passing familiarity with silent films, whether specifically comedy or not, are pretty likely to know the name Max Sennett. And I think most of them are going to know Hal Roach. But for anyone who really isn't that well-versed in that era, they should know that Hal Roach was at least as significant as Max Sennett, and for a time they were close competitors. So before we get into the specifics of your book, why don't you give us kind of a thumbnail of uh, who Hal Roach was and what what he accomplished? Not too much detail, because that'll (laughs) remove probably a lot of questions that we might have going on. Okay. Well, I should say that uh, Max Sennett started his Keystone studio in 1912, And they were uh, immediately successful and famous. That was the year that Hal Roach, as a 20-year-old, arrived in Hollywood and became a cowboy extra over at the Universal Studios, specifically for Bison. So in 1912, Max Sennett was firmly established as head of a studio. Hal Roach was a 20-year-old who had been in Alaska and Washington and he was put in charge of bringing a, a bunch of old trucks down to the Los Angeles area. Then he saw an ad, Cowboy Extras Wanted, and since he could ride a horse, had a cowboy outfit, he applied and he was hired. It only took Hal Roach two years to form his own studio, and it was very small at the beginning, no rival to Max Sennett, but definitely Within a few years, he had a very prosperous studio going on. Despite all the uh, publicity, he told me that he and Max Sennett were friends. They were not rivals, 
But they were competitors in a sense, certainly. But uh, there was no animosity between them. So Hal Roach grew up in a, a small town in upstate New York, Elmira, and traveled west. And he was the star of his football team. He was a, a very gregarious fellow. He was the perfect guy to form a family-oriented movie studio at the beginnings of Hollywood. Is that a, a nutshell enough for the for us to begin with? Sure. I'd say we're off and running. Now, before we start grilling you, I should mention that Jim's presence here should be especially valuable, given that his massive film collection began in earnest with the films of Laurel and Hardy, who were cultivated as a team by Hal Roach. Aside from the huge presence of Laurel and Hardy in Jim's collection, he has many other films produced by Roach featuring other teams and stars. Consequently, he's likely in a position to offer up more informed questions and commentary than I am. In fact, I can't help but wonder if I shouldn't just go get a bite to eat while the two of you carry on the conversation. But that would be abdicating my responsibilities as host, so I'll do my best to keep up. I think you're overselling me. Well, that remains to be seen. But feel free to jump in at any time. Okay. Now, to begin with, Craig, perhaps it would be good for you to explain the title, 100 Years of Brodies with Hal Roach. What exactly does that mean? That's, uh, that's the number one question. Brodies. Brodies is a term Hal Roach himself used many times. And I meant to ask him when I first met him, I was only 20 years old when I met him, to interview him for my UCLA school paper. And he used the term Brodies numerous times. I wrote it down. I spelled it B-R-O-D-I-E with a question mark. I had no idea what it was. It was years later, only when I began researching my book that I discovered exactly what that means. Now, I hesitate to reveal the exact uh, description because I don't know how many potential readers I might lose if they go, oh, that's what Brody's is. I don't have to buy the book and read it. But I will say that it was a 19th century slang term. And if anyone is familiar with the 1933 movie, The Bowery, starring George Raft and Wallace Beery and about 30 Hal Roach uh, supporting players, you'll find out the whole story about Steve Brody, the Brooklyn Bridge, and what led to this term being used in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century that applied to clowns, slapstick artists, etc. Okay. Let's hope that that uh, is enough of a tease that'll motivate people to pick up your book, you know, as opposed to something silly like wanting to read about Hal Roach. Um, <laughs> exactly. Now, the the thing that I couldn't help but notice in this, uh, it's got a very unique design and structure. It doesn't have, it's not a typical biography. Uh, it doesn't really flow in that way. It's almost like an annotated journal. And I presume that that's intentional and that that's partially based on the material that you were working from. So uh, can you kind of tell us about how the, how the book came about? And also, if you want to expand on your background a little more, I mean, you mentioned, you know, your UCLA paper and everything. But if you like I say, if you want to flesh that out a little bit and the specifics sure. of how you came to meet Hal Roach, you know, Sure. Well, the, I, I have to address the structure of the book you mentioned. Uh, it is basically in chronological order. 
It all began with my being invited by Mr. Roach to interview him. And I asked him to describe his career because I knew nothing about him. This was years before the internet, you know. I was recently arrived in uh, as an undergraduate at UCLA. I'd never been in a big city like L.A. before. I had grown up in San Diego, California, where I picked up my dad's 8-millimeter movie camera and started making movies. In high school, I actually made comedies, silent comedies, with my schoolmates, one of which, believe it or not, was a Laurel and Hardy-style comedy which was a big hit in the school. They showed it in the auditorium. I was so proud. But that is my hats off, I'm afraid. It was called, Is There a Gardener in the House? I played James Finlayson, the doctor. It was sort of a spoof on the saps at sea scene with Finlayson as the doctor, you know, because there was a fat boy and a skinny boy in my class that were clowns goofing around together. So I said to them one day, why don't we make a Laurel and Hardy type comedy? And that's how that all began. And then when I learned about Blackhawk films, I started collecting the silent films. And I think it was 1970 when I had the funds to actually buy a sound projector. And I bought some of their early talkies. And then I would have screenings uh, with my neighbors and whatnot. So that was my rudimentary beginnings of my uh, love of old films and old comedies and classic Hollywood. No, and then you had several parts to your question. I'm see what else should I? Oh, I'm known to do that. It sounds like we had several things in common. I actually was also making some student films in high school, and I made a couple that were sort of in the vein of Laurel and Hardy. One would be called a one reeler. The other one aspired to be a feature, but I never completed it. But I enjoyed making them, and they're they're fun to to look back on. So I made numerous films in high school, and then I went to college, Forest Grove, Oregon, Pacific University. It's the oldest university west of the Mississippi. And I had a wonderful uh, theater professor there. He encouraged me as an actor. I became a, a stage actor and started learning about writing plays and the structure of plays and dialogue and all that sort of thing. Then I heard about a study program to Mexico, and I'd always wanted to explore Mexico. By that time, I had a Bolex Super 8 camera. And when I was accepted to uh, study down there, and I was a very adventurous young man, I took my movie camera and I, I traveled everywhere. Mountains, jungles, little villages, the huge city of Mexico City. And I gathered so much material. I made a 40-minute documentary when I got home to California that summer. And on a whim, I sent it to UCLA Film School and applied for their film school. And sure enough, I was accepted. So in the fall of 1973, I found myself living in the dorms of UCLA, which was just a short distance from the hallowed hills of Bel Air. And one day I thought, Gee, it's 1973. Are there any old timers from the early days of Hollywood still around? Again, I, I was very naive. I didn't know uh, how to do the research or anything. I knew Stan Laurel had passed away when I was about 12 and Ollie had long gone, but I thought of Hal Roach. He would be in his early eighties. Could he still be alive? I looked up in uh, the phone book. Remember, we used to have phone book 
And there was uh, the name Hal Roach in Bel Air, a phone number. So I called up the number, and a little girl answered the phone. I said, is this the home of Hal Roach, who used to be a movie producer? She said, yes, it is. I said, oh, may I speak to him, please? She goes, just a minute. Grandpa, telephone. And next thing I knew, I was actually talking to Hal Roach. I told him uh, my love of Laurel and Hardy, the fact that I was a young film student, and just spontaneously, I said, may I interview you for my school paper? I mean, I wasn't part of any school paper, but I thought if I ever wrote a paper, I'd have a school paper. And he said, sure. He says, next week, such and such a time, meet me at the Bel Air Country Club. I'll be in the card room. I said, you bet, Mr. Roach. Thank you. And that's how it all began. I, I met him in the card room. He was it was hilarious because uh, it was a big room full of all kinds of old gentlemen playing cards, having a great time. Now, I had no idea who, what Hal Roach looked like at that point, but he was a jolly man. Uh, I figured he looked like he was in his early 60s when he was actually 81. And he said, deal me out, boys. I've got an interview to conduct. So we went to a private room and we just got along great. Uh, he liked my sense of humor, and he was pretty astonished at all. I knew so many details about the Laurel and Hardy silence and the talkies and whatnot. By that point, we just had a great conversation. He was fascinating to listen to. He was gregarious, charming, a lot of fun. It lasted almost three hours, and uh, we had another about a three-hour interview after that. So that became my term paper. I was enrolled in uh, History of the American Comedy, Film Comedy at UCLA. Professor Bradley was his name, and he gave me an A-plus on the paper, so uh, that was a great start. Oh, it was hard to uh, imagine that you could have a better subject for your paper. Exactly. And, uh, Jim, did uh, you have something? you? Well, I may be jumping the gun on this, but I was just going to ask a question about the source, because there's a lot of uh, memos and telegrams and that sort of thing in the book and were were those all at was it usc or the academy or where where did you get okay those? that was years later okay at this point in the early 70s that was my big project creating this paper for hal roach and how did i know this 81 year old man would live nearly 20 years longer and have his marbles all the way to the end and that we we would maintain a, a friendship i didn't know that at the beginning so a few years went by when I saw him again. He remembered me. He said, come on up to the house. So there I met him again. And then by that time, I was living in New York City. I became a professional stage actor and uh, writing plays and traveling around pretty much as an actor and devoted to the theater. I had no connection with film or television at that time. And next thing you know, I'm back in L.A. I moved back to L.A. around 1987, I believe it was. And in 1988, I think at the very beginning of the year, I read that Laurel and Hardy, a number of their Spanish shorts had been restored. They were going to have their first, their premiere screening at UCLA. So, of course, I went. And remember, I had lived in Mexico. I learned to speak fluent Spanish. I was so curious to see and hear Laurel and Hardy in Spanish. 
And it was a revelation because not only were they funny, just naturally. Where were you born? I don't know. Fancy not knowing where you were born. Well, I was too young to remember. But their accents in Spanish, which were so understandable, this is the amazing thing, but with funny accents, doubled the comedy for people who knew Spanish. Donde naciste? No sé. Que no sabes? No me acuerdo. Estaba muy chico. I don't think they were as successful in French because that is a notoriously difficult language for Americans to master. And it's kind of painful. I know a little French and listening to them speak French is a bit of a challenge. But their Spanish was hilarious. So the head of the UCLA Film School at the time was Robert Rosen. And he came up to me. He said, do you know how Roach is looking for a writing assistant? I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, he really is. So give him a call. So I did. And he told me that he wanted to have someone help him create the script for his comeback comedy. He called it a comeback comedy. Well, at this point, he was 96 years of age. And he said, you know, I go to bed early. I have limited energy. He said, do you think you would be willing to live in my home while we do this project so that you know, when I have the energy and you be available, we can work on the script. And I thought, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, I was already working and I had my own apartment. It wasn't like I needed a place to live, but I couldn't turn this opportunity down. So it was April 4, 1988 is the day I moved into his home and began a whole new adventure with Mr. Roach. At that stage, I was focused on his project. It didn't even occur to me to write a book about him. He had an associate named Richard W. Ban, who's very big in the Sons of the Desert community, who had been helping Mr. Roach in many ways. And everybody thought he would be writing a biography on Hal Roach. In fact, I offered him over the years, I added to my original paper. And every time I would visit or talk with Mr. Roach, I would make notes. And eventually I had a 75 page document, which I sent to Mr. Ban because I thought he was writing a, a biography. I didn't think of doing it myself. I never heard a word from him about it. The years go by. Mr. Roach passes away. Years and years go by. I'm expecting somebody to write a biography about Mr. Roach and his incredible career. I found out that uh, William K. Everson, the historian, wrote a very thin volume in 1971, which really was more or less an outline. And then uh, I think it was 2005, uh, Ward, I Richard Ward, was it? Yes. Wrote, wrote a book, uh, but it was very business-oriented and profit and loss and very detailed in that regard. Right. Uh, it was lacking a lot of the human element. So I found myself living in 2011, I think I moved close to USC, University of Southern California. I had published a photograph of Clayton Johnson. Do you know the writer? He wrote for The Twilight Zone. Was it William Clayton Johnson? He was a wonderful old gentleman. I took a great picture of him and put it on the Internet. Out of the blue, I was contacted by Bear Manor Media. They said, we'd like to use your photo. We're doing a book about Mr. Johnson. 
And I said, sure. I'd never heard of Bear Manor Media. They said, oh, we specialize in publishing books about classic Hollywood. I said, that's great. I said, do you know I have a 75-page article about Hal Roach? I even have photos I took of the time I stayed with him and whatnot. And they were eager to publish that. Well, I was preparing that, a 75-page book, when someone said, did you know the Hal Roach collection is at USC? They have his business papers there. I said, you're kidding me. Well, I can't. I have to explore this. So I, I got permission to go to USC, the Cinematic Arts Library. I met the wonderful librarian, Ned Comstock, who has helped numerous researchers over the decades. And he was a very helpful gentleman. And next thing I knew, I said, well, I contacted Bear Manor. I said, look, I have found a treasure trove of original studio documents, you know, letters, telegrams from 1914 to the late 50s. I have to explore all this material. And they said, go ahead. There's no, we have no time limit. So I spent, I would say, close to two years going through virtually every paper I could find in that collection to write my book. And I found amazing facts and details. Plus, I filled them in with all sorts of film trade magazines that I explored from the earliest days. Of course, books. Fortunately, they had a, of course, USC had a fantastic collection of cinema books, not to mention the magazines, not to mention, you know, any new, any number of things, reading materials and whatnot, pamphlets. And I learned so many things that when I knew Mr. Roach, he didn't share a fraction of all his accomplishments. He was not a man to brag or, or reminisce about the past unless he was specifically asked certain questions. For example, we'd have dinner in his dining room, which had photographs of all these celebrities all over the walls. So I would ask him, Oh, what about this? And who is that? And. Uh, oh, Will Rogers, he taught me how to play polo, and I starred him in a series of comedies. This, that, and the other. He had a picture of Mussolini. What? You knew Mussolini? Well, that's a whole other story. He had a picture of JFK. He had uh, a fantastic, huge photograph at, uh, I don't know if it was Marion Davies Beach House with all the luminaries of the 20s there. So I realized what an incredible career this man has had and all the people he's known. But in real life, he was modest, just uh, avuncular, you know. Uh, I, I felt like he was my grandpa in a way, hmm. like a, a very, a very, very charming grandfather type. Yeah. One of the things that comes through in your writing about those, at least those, those early years is the sense of fun that apparently permeated his studio that I guess kind of became its reputation. Oh, this man loved fun. Yes, he loved fun. He was, uh, he loved a good time, a good fun time. And you could see he knew how to attract the right people and he wanted clean comedy. You know, he, there was a lot of risque stuff, especially in the twenties, you know, I don't know what to say. I think, oh, Mark Twain, he told me he was very impressed. Mark Twain had a summer home in his town of Elmira. And he was very impressed when Mark Twain came to his school, or or perhaps it was his Sunday, Sunday school, to talk to the children. And when I thought about it, I realized, 
Well, Hal Roach sort of exemplifies that Americana of Mark Twain, that gentle humor, the connection with uh, simple folk and country ways, you know, that sort of thing. And that is very true. And that's the kind of man he was. Yeah, that seems to be reflected in a lot of the films. And of course, it would make it a natural for he and Will Rogers to uh, become friends. Right. And also, and then I realized he got along. Now, I was an eccentric kind of clownish character that he just immediately understood. And I realized, well, of course, he got along well with all these clowns and the technicians and the workers there and the businessmen. This He could relate to people of all strata of society just naturally. He was that kind of a guy. And again, that's something else that shows through in the films. I mean, whether we're talking about the uh, the films of Harold Lloyd as kind of the everyman, the eager young lad, um, all, including also then the Our Gang kids, just basic kids. What do they know about golf? Well, he's... I shot in 74 yesterday. 74 strokes for 18 holes? No, that was just for the first hole. But I cut it down to 64 for the second. Right. Oh, he told me, he told me the day he looked out his window and he saw kids playing in the railroad yard out there. And he realized this is fascinating, just watching ordinary kids playing. And that's where he got the idea. He didn't want showbiz kids with their stage mothers and that kind of phony stuff. He wanted real natural kids. And thank goodness he found a, a man like Robert McGowan, who just was a natural relating to kids, and they created a wonderful atmosphere. It was a very wonderful, you know, the lot of fun, they called it. Roach was a very gregarious and uh, fair-minded man. I could mention the Stan and Ollie movie, which had a, a scene of a kind of a nasty, uh, money-grubbing producer. Yeah, pure fiction. Uh, it was. It was pure fiction. I know how Roach would have been furious. He would have wanted to sue them. Because do you remember back in the early 90s, they made a television movie about Thelma Todd. It was called Hot mm -hmm. Toddy. Well, I watched it. And the next day I called Hal Roach. Obviously, he watched it, too. And he says, I'm going to sue them. They came to my house one day and asked me all about Thelma Todd. We had a long conversation. And then they went and made their own movie. And I said, well, you're right, Mr. Roach. It was not accurate. And the way they portrayed you was terrible. Yeah, uh, it's detailed in my book, our lengthy conversation about what he thought of that. So you can imagine his reaction would have been what that would have been to the Stan and Ollie movie. Yeah. Totally unfair. Yeah. Now, of these, uh, just to kind of go down the list here, I, I'm, we've mentioned Harold Lloyd, our gang, Laurel and Hardy, Will Rogers. And then also Charlie Chase, who I guess started out as a, essentially a writer and then director and ultimately became a star in his own right. Another fine mess you've gotten us into. If you hadn't insisted upon stopping, we wouldn't have been robbed. And if you hadn't insisted upon us going to California and listen to me and going to Michigan, we wouldn't have been robbed either. That isn't true. There's just as big crooks in Michigan as there is in California. No, no, it's bigger in California. It's the climate. Oh, poppycock. Oh, fiddlesticks. Oh, Charlie. Oh, mother knows best. We've got the Thelma Todd and Zesu Bits series. Let me at him, Zesu. Let, let me at him. Honey, don't get excited now. Just relax. Remember that old saying? Relax. Mm -hmm. 
Hush thy angry passion. Just be calm. Like me. Sit down and relax. <laughs> and then Cesar Pitts was replaced by Patsy Kelly for the, the run of those. Hello, Colossal Studios. Well, uh, you know the blonde that you're waiting for to do the lead for the horse thief test? <laughs> you know, the blonde with the blue eyes? Yeah, that's it. Well, they're black now. <laughs> right, too bad. <laughs> well, hey, hey, wait a minute. How about trying out Todd? Why, the Selma Todd, of course. Hey, you know the girl from Joplin, Missouri, who made good? And then, of course, there's... Gentlemen, if you'll just permit me, I have an announcement to make. Mr. Roach has requested me to tell you folks out there that he has added another star to his already well-known firmament. A very great star, in fact, Mr. Harry Langdon. Mr. Roach has the greatest confidence in the world in Mr. Langdon, and I know that Harry is with Mr. Roach, heart and soul. Who uh, seems, I don't know, maybe the most enigmatic, would that be the right word? Uh, of the whole lot. Were there any interesting insights regarding him that you learned? Oh, well, not when I knew Mr. Roach. In those days, his those early talkies that uh, Harry Langdon made for Roach were completely lost, apparently, or I'd, I knew nothing about those. I focused on the stars we know about today. It was only years later that I discovered all the various... Roach was like experimenting he took a, he had a hunch and he so he had the the crazy animal shorts called the dippy doodads he tried starring all sorts of uh, actors well one of the early ones was toto a clown from uh, new york city that he starred in a few films there was clyde cook there was glenn tryon there was uh then there were some women he made some fascinating serials with edna murphy and then there was Beatrice Laplante, all these forgotten stars now. But people don't realize he had so many various series that sometimes just lasted a season. He even starred James Finlayson to be a star in a few shorts, though he found his niche as Laurel and Hardy's nemesis, of course. And uh, in the late 20s, he brought some, uh, you might say, fading stars such as Theta Berra and Lionel Barrymore when he was sort of between jobs. He starred them in shorts. He was always trying something new and didn't hesitate to move on if it didn't really work. So, yeah, Thelma Todd. Now, oh, with Charlie Chase, of course, what an incredible talent. He was multi-talented. And in the early talkies, Charlie wanted to co-star with Thelma Todd. And he was kind of disappointed when uh, Hal Roach decided to team her with Zasu Pitts. But they made a few talkies together. I'm so glad in the last few years how the restoration projects of these early talkies, now you can see the early talkies of Charlie Chase, virtually all the films of Todd and Pitts and Todd and Patsy Kelly. And so many of the films have been restored rediscovered all the streamliners they did just release a set with the five uh harry langdon films too yes that's right that is really amazing langdon he was an odd choice of course a very odd character and how do you turn that strange baby-like character uh how do you adapt that character to the talkies how do you do 
How do you do, Mrs. Quimby? How do you do? Well, is Mr. is Mr. Quimby at home? No, Mr. Quimby is not at home. Oh, Mr. Quimby is not at home. No. He's, he's not in the house. He's, he's not in the house, and he's not out there. No. Well, for goodness sakes, you and... Well, well for goodness sakes, you and I better better look into this matter, hadn't we? I'm not worried about Mr. Quimby. Oh, you're not worried? Oh, well, neither am I worried. <laughs> well, I care about Mr. Quimby, only I... I thought maybe if, as long as he's not home, as long as he's not out here... I think that we ought to kind of look into things a little bit. Some of it was a little awkward, yes, but, you know, towards the latter part of the series, they were they were hitting their stride, I thought. And some of them are very funny and some very funny scenes, if the overall shorts didn't sort of match the quality of the others. But who can beat Laurel and Hardy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. this is this is jumping back, kind of breaking the chronology here as we gradually work our way forward, but... I don't want to let it get away from me. Now you referenced the lonesome Luke films of Harold Lloyd, which is one of the characters he did early on before he established the, the glasses character or glass. Yeah, Cause you made, made that distinction in there too. The glass character is the correct yeah. and, term. Uh, his daughter was very adamant about calling it the glass character rather than the glasses character because right. Harold called it the glass character. Okay. And as far as the Lonesome Loop films, you mentioned that, I guess, because they had been released by MGM, if I'm remembering this correctly, by MGM, they were in their vault. And so when the the fire hit, that wiped them all out, except for a dozen that were not stored Uh, in there. The vault was at uh, Harold Lloyd's estate. Okay, I, okay. I I did the research on this because there is some confusion about it all. I have it here succinctly. The facts. This is this is what uh, I have done. Okay. Uh, for example, someone had said that oh, Hal Roach wasn't responsible for Laurel and Hardy becoming a team because he and his wife went on a many month uh, cruise around the world at that time. Well, I found out that was not true. He and his wife did not start their world cruise until January of 1928. By which time, Laurel and Hardy were already an established team. Now, this thing about the vault fires, the loss of films, here it is in a nutshell. In 1938, there was a fire at the Pathé Exchange Vault in New Jersey, and it destroyed many of those early films. Okay, uh, so, so I, misre- I misremembered then, I, for some reason. Uh, but no, no, it, mm-hmm. uh, but you were right about, in 1938, Lloyd purchased negatives of 114 of the surviving Pathé films. And this I quote from Annette D'Agostino Lloyd, no relation to Harold Lloyd, but she has written extensively about Harold Lloyd. She's written a great book about him. She says, quote, amongst the films now in his possession, that's late 1938, were much of his lonesome Luke output and scores of the glass character one reelers, along with all the multiple reel and feature-length films. Lloyd stored his prized possessions in a newly constructed film vault on his Green Acres estate. But five years later, in 1943, a nitrate explosion and fire ripped through the film vault, and most of the early films perished. I have the exact list here. Of the 67 Lonesome Luke films, 53 did not survive, so only 14 Lonesome Luke films from 1915 to 17 do exist. 
Of the 81 single reel glass character shorts of 1917 to 1919, 63 are known to survive, while 18 are lost. The character that Lloyd played before Lonesome Luke, called Willie Work, now that I am still in the process of trying to figure out how many Willie Work films were produced. Every source has a different number. Uh, the only one that exists, apparently, is Just Nuts, which is the first short of 1915 that Pathé agreed to release and on that basis agreed to release the rest of Roach's productions. That started Hal Roach on his career in Harold Lloyd, Just Nuts. That was a Willie Work film. Apparently, that's the only one to survive. <laughs> but his two real glass shorts from 1919 survived, 1922 and 23. The, he made three reelers, four reelers, and features. They all survived, thank goodness. And who knows what we may discover uh, in the near future, because... Exciting rediscoveries are always being made. Yeah. I know they've found a uh, another Lonesome Luke within the past two years. Oh, really? I'd yeah. very much like to know about that. Yeah. Maybe you can email me. Uh, if you ever make, if you ever discover things like that, please let me know. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. I was wondering if the, because at, at least my recollection in reading the book, of course, I already blew it with, you know, M confusing MGM and Pathé, but you had indicated at that point that a dozen had escaped uh, the fire. So you mentioned that 14 survived. My question was going to be if any, since that original dozen had been discovered having survived by being elsewhere. And so apparently two more, is that pretty much? Well, I don't up to know date? exactly. I don't know exactly when this article was written. It doesn't have a date. So it could have been, uh, this could be 10 years old, 15 years old, or five years old. And who knows? I don't know the latest statistics on that. Hmm. Okay. It'd be great I can, to know. I can send a message to Annette and see if she's got a count on that. Oh, that would be great. Thank you. All right. Well, one thing that was interesting, I found, is that uh, apparently, according to your book, it, it reveals that Hal Roach, I mean, obviously a phenomenal producer, uh, making the decisions, uh, the artistic decisions that he did. But when it came to directing, although he evidently was very competent at it, he just really didn't seem to have all that much patience for it. <laughs> well, he had an interesting relationship with directing. He wasn't one of those serious, you know, Michael Curtiz or John Ford type directors. I think, now he never told me this specifically, and all the stories I've read about him being a sort of uh, lackadaisical director, especially later. Now, in the early days, somebody had to direct those one-reelers, and so it was going to be him. He was the boss. He was the head guy. And he always, always corroborated with his actors. This is the thing. He wasn't a power hungry guy needing to exert his, you know, machismo or anything like that. He liked the camaraderie and the coming up with new ideas and he didn't care where they came from. Well, of course, later in the thirties, he had some spats with Stan Laurel. But in those early days, I think it was just a heck of a lot of fun. Now later he did like, he said, I like to keep my hand in things by the late thirties. And then, you know, he brought D.W. Griffith out of retirement to help him with projects. One of the notorious 
stories about Hal Roach as not the greatest director was when he was directing Joan Bennett and Adolphe Monjou in The Housekeeper's Daughter. Came out about 1939. Well, apparently those two stars, and he paid them more money than he'd paid any other star up to that point. This is when he was trying to move beyond the slapstick comedy stage and, you know, create respectable features that really rivaled the big studios. So he got the biggest stars and had the greatest production values and whatnot. But apparently, Joan Bennett and Adolf Monjou accepted starring in this film based on the book. There was a, a bestseller, I think it was, that uh, The Housekeeper's Daughter, and they said, sure, we'll do it. What they were horrified by was the script, apparently. The shooting script, I don't know what it was. I never got the details. Maybe the dialogue, maybe just the construction, something about it. They were not happy, but they couldn't get out of the contracts. So they would literally make fun of Hal Roach and the production they were in. And there, there was an article published in, I think it was Good Housekeeping or something, uh, just revealing their kind of rather disdain of being in this production. I was pretty shocked to read that. And then uh, Joan Bennett was very ticked off by the publicity that the Hal Roach Studios created for her film. And they made her character come across as a real floozy, which she wasn't, apparently, in the film. And she took such umbrage, she had her lawyers send hundreds of letters to women's clubs around the country saying she did not approve of this publicity. Her character was not as questionable as they're implying, and she would never have played that sort of a role. And do not construe this publicity as uh, any validation on my part. I think that covers that. <laughs> but, but he was a competent director. He wasn't a brilliant director. He was a brilliant producer, of course. But, hey... It was his studio. If he wanted to direct some films, he certainly could. Yeah. Well, so many of us, I think, even though if we're familiar with his career in general, we realize that it did extend, of course, well beyond the silence. But I still think a lot of us, when we hear Hal Roach, our, our mind goes back that far. It's, you know, two things like the the original Laurel and Hardy's and the Our Gangs and all that. And then we just kind of work our way forward from there. Now. In terms of the transition to sound, found that interesting, what you documented in the book and commented on, that apparently he was pretty eager to make that transition. And most of his stars just really were completely uh, good making that transition as well. He was a pioneer. There's no doubt about it. And when you think about the various phases of Hollywood... From 1914 and the steady development and progress through the 20s and then that transition. Yes, he was one of the very first. I, I found out that uh, actually Max Sennett released the first talkie short in 19, late 1928. So he beat Hal Roach by a few months. But of course, Roach just was so thorough with the Victor talking company bringing the experts to his studio. He was going to get on top of it immediately. And yeah, it's incredible what he did. The smooth transition. Now, it was a little more difficult with the Our Gang kids, you know, kids trying to teach them dialogue. I can't imagine how painful and painstaking that must have been. 
The Oriental girls do their ori the wild pig pagan dance to make to make to make whoopee to make whoopee. Oh, so that's Monica. Well, anyway, Neil is in a terrible rage today. And well made. And well made, we all tremble in our pants. So it took a little while for them to catch their stride with the Argan kids, but they did. Yeah. Yeah. Say, fella, I paid money to see a price fight. Not a baby cry. I want my money back right now. Well, what do you think you get for a baseball and a bean shooter? Jack Dempsey or Mickey Leonard? Craig uh, Regus, who's Elmer Regus's grandson, lives up in Tulsa. And I've met him a couple of times. He's got incredible pictures, and he was the head oh. of the sound department. Yes, he helped me. He gave me permission to publish a few of the photographs he has. Mm-hmm. Very helpful, very helpful. Where do you live, uh, Jim? Dallas. Oh, okay. Are you in Dallas also, Bill? Uh, not per se. I'm in Plano, which is a suburb on the northeast edge of Dallas. Okay, very good. Now, uh, speaking of our gang, I mean, because there's a couple of things there that I found interesting, too, that you relayed in there. One was that there were apparently reports of imposters going around trying to uh, supposedly recruit kids. Yes, there were. <laughs> I found uh, letters to that effect. And, of course, there, were, there was uh, some character who I don't have the notes in front of me, but in the 50s, didn't he try to pass himself off as one of the little rascals? And he was on one of the game shows in the 50s. Was that Don Marlowe? I don't recall the name. There was a guy named Don Marlowe who tried to pass himself off as Porky. And That's he right. actually wrote a book. I've got a copy of his book. Oh, I didn't know he wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that sort of thing does happen, did happen. <laughs> He should have collaborated with the guy who insisted he was Joe Besser. <laughs> and also regarding our gang, well, this isn't just our gang, but I found it interesting. Uh, one article that you, or maybe it was a press release that you included in there talking about the different types of fan mail that the various Roach stars would receive. Oh, yes, that was quite fascinating. All these, uh, so there was just, can you imagine the plethora of documents I went through and trying to organize everything out of the blue. I'd get a publicity release of a questionnaire they sent out. And yes, I don't have the exact page number here, but it was surprising how many professional men wrote fan letters to Laurel and Hardy, as opposed to, you know, maybe working men or whatnot. That sort of thing was quite fascinating and interesting. Yeah. I've got to say you've, you may have changed my mind about Henry Ginsburg. Oh, good. Yes. Because, you know, there's hearsay, there's obviously the pressure of saving money during the Depression was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that virtually all of Ginsburg's letters were in the archives. Otherwise, I never would have known myself. And I want to give credit where credit was due. He, He loved his job. He moved out from New York. There were personal letters to his family saying how much he loved being there at the Hal Roach Studios. And they were doing everything they could to keep things going. They had to have, they had to make drastic 
decisions regarding, you know, expenditures and all that sort yeah. of thing. And I, yeah. I could understand how the, uh, the performers would be a little pissed that they couldn't joke around as long as they used to. And, but things were changing, you know, it went from being very casual and informal to, well, can you imagine how structured and rigid everything is today? Yeah. Plus, some of these execs were wanting to can the uh, R Gang series in the mid uh, yeah. 33, I think it was, and Ginsburg uh, fought to keep them. Yeah, I was shocked and, at that. Yeah, I was too. These are these unbelievable letters that I would find. So I made it a point of pointing these out. Plus, the fact that Ginsburg himself is the one who proposed a best short category for the Academy Awards. 1932, yeah. and they accepted his proposition, and sure enough, the music box won for that year. It was kind of surprising that they would want to can the Our Gangs and then two years later actually buy the series. Well, the, the ways of Hollywood are sometimes yeah. mysterious. <laughs> yeah, well, we've spoken so much about the shorts, but it's it's worth pointing out some of the features that he did. I mean, you did mention the one uh, where there was the the difficulty with the stars, but going back to the silent era, then I guess the version of Call of the Wild that he produced. Now, that was the oh, first yes. adaptation of that novel, I'm guessing. I believe it was, and I believe that was uh, Hal Roach's first feature. I don't have all the... But I do know, I do know that years later, when he was interviewed, Roach kind of downplayed the dramas that he made. But Call of the Wild received such incredible, incredible, great reviews in those days. I mean, hailed, literally hailed as a great movie. Hmm. I don't know, is it, I don't know if it's still in existence or not. Is it a lost film? I, I kind of think it is. But, I've, uh, I've never seen it. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that a shame? But literally, in 1923, the reviews were fantastic for mm -hmm. it. I quote a few of them in my book. Mm -hmm. So, and then he he made some features with his new young actor who replaced Harold Lloyd named Glenn Tryon. By the way, Glenn Tryon's son became a very well-known actor and writer. In oh, the Tom 60s Tryon? Tom Tryon, yes. Oh, okay. That's his... That's his father, Glenn. That's interesting. Right. And then he also, of course, made a feature expanding from the Our Gang, uh, the movie General Spanky. Oh, yeah, 1936. Yeah, see, Roach just would try all sorts of... Well, he tried out a feature for everybody, and except for Charlie Chase's. They all, they all seemed to work. Well, even Charlie Chase, I think it was called Neighborhood House, they yeah. they created it as a feature, and for some reason, they people kept saying it's not working as a feature, and they cut it down to a short. That's another mystery. Well, Why the story Charlie I heard was uh, was that because it was called Bank Night, the feature version. Oh yes, and Bank Night was a corporation that used to do these dish dish giveaways and that sort of thing at movie theaters. Mm -hmm. And I guess they threatened to sue. So, oh, did they? Yeah, I didn't know all the details. So they had to cut out all, you know, references to Bank Night. Oh, mm -hmm. hmm. I remember well, the silent short movie night. I think that may have been the first Charlie Chase I ever saw. So, mm -hmm. was this kind of an expansion on that? It's similar. Hmm. Yeah. 
but it's but movie night's much better. Hmm. Okay. And Charlie then Chase, yeah. I wondered why he left Roach in nineteen thirty-six after this. He was also in a, a really good comedy feature called Kelly the Second. Mm-hmm. And he had a good role in that. But for some reason, by thirty-six, Hal Roach was really steering away from shorts and this the sort of slapsticky stuff, except for Laurel and Hardy and the R gang. They were still with him. But I don't know really why Charlie Chase left the Roach. It had something to do with his drinking. Oh. Because he almost died two or three times in the 30s. That's right. Could be that. Well, it's Mm -hmm. nice that Charlie did pick up his career and lasted for a whole bunch of other shorts at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the ones that I've got. Um, Although I did just order a set of the, the Jimmy Jump shorts from Grapevine Video. Ah, so I'm looking forward to seeing those. Mm-hmm. All right, well. a lot of oh, but by, by the way, a lot of the apparently the MGM silence. So Roach switched over to MGM after Pathé. He signed a deal with MGM in the spring of 1926, but it wasn't until the fall of 27 that MGM began releasing his shorts. So you had mentioned MGM earlier. That could be the confusion. So a number of... Oh, I don't need that much help to be confused. (laughs) A number of the Pathé films were actually released after MGM was releasing some of... But apparently, MGM did not take good care of The Last Silence they made in 29. So That that happened with a lot of late silence. Mm. So didn't a lot of Charlie Chase's late silence disappear? Uh... There's there's a few. Yeah, there's more missing right in those last five years, I think, than else, elsewhere in his career. Which is really sad because he was just yeah. terrific in those days. Oh, he was really hitting his stride in those late silence. Yes, yes. So the fact that they're not there, a number of them are not there, is, is sad. And let's hope. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked Hal Roach, you know, hats off. Is there any earthly reason why that film is completely missing? And I asked Hal Roach. He said, I don't understand it. He said, I gave a copy of every film I ever made to the Cinémathèque Française. Wouldn't they have it somewhere in their basement? Or, or what about in New Zealand or Australia? The last, the last leg of the, uh, exhibition, you know, destinations. There's got to be something. I tend tend to think if it was, we probably would have heard by now because they're looking everywhere for this stuff. Or some collector is just being very, uh, very greedy and he's waiting until 2027, the 100th anniversary of Hats Off to reveal it. Let's hope so anyway. Well, about 10 years ago was when they found the second reel of Battle of the Century. That's right. Yeah. All kinds of amazing. And what about Duck Soup? The film that literally is Laurel and Hardy's first real starring teaming that was discovered in the, what, the seventies and, yeah. and it's now available. I can't wait to see the uh, new Blu-ray 1927 releases. I, uh, I, I checked the uh, tracking on it and my copy is supposed to arrive today. So. Oh, great. Hope right. give, do you have a Facebook or a website and you can give a report about it? Well, I, yeah, I guess I could. I, 
I haven't I bet done a lot it before, of people but, would like to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's going to be a lot of people writing about this. Um, That's true. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, looks like we've nowhere near exhausted the subject, uh, which is good because otherwise, then there wouldn't be. It's as impossible. Much appealing. With the career of Hal Roach spanning yeah. the years. I didn't even get to the television years. Right. Yeah. I or mean, or we didn't talk about, you know, Topper, 1 million BC, you know, so. Well, if you ever want to interview me again, we could have a part two. <laughs> That's true. But gosh, you should, you should see the, the line that I've got at this point. But, uh, but this is good because it teases it and hopefully will entice people to order the book. I've got to say, I, I cannot imagine a more detailed book covering someone's career i mean oh, wait this a is... i gotta interrupt you there okay yes you can you imagine it imagine it because well, you'll, you'll have i will to reveal me <laughs> i am going to reveal you are going to get the exclusive scoop mr groves that i am now six months into my updated version of my hal roach book i have yeah. discovered more materials i have almost perhaps a bombshell revelation Really? And oh, yes. And I am filling it. I said, you know, this is the time I've got to share what I've discovered. And there have been a number of fantastic film trade journals that had never been scanned and put on the Internet until the last couple of years. Some fantastic publications with some great writers. Some of these journals only lasted a year or less but they included some excellent writers just devoted to the art of motion pictures. They covered Hal Roach's productions in amazing detail, interviewed a lot of his obscure employees, and I have uncovered amazing new treasures that I am in the midst of compiling a, almost a brand new book. That's great. Okay, well, in any case, for listeners who want to... Uh, Go ahead and get the current version of the book if you haven't oh, completely. Do. Yes, I mean that that represents years of research yeah. and refinement and corrections. Fans would write in, experts would write in, and say, "Did you know this? Do you know that?" Just as Jim is telling me, "Oh, they found another lonesome Luke." So I would, and thank goodness, my book is um, print on demand, and my publisher Ben Omart. So patient and understanding. He's allowed me, I have had to do four updates on that book alone because I know Mr. Roach. I'm doing this in his honor. This has been a labor of love. He was one of the finest men I ever knew. He befriended me as a, a unknown 20 year old and maintained a friendship with me for nearly 20 years. I'd never known anyone with such integrity, kindness, and dedication to doing the best he can all through his life. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. Correct any error, explore any mystery, and just do the best I can. So Mr. Roach will say, good job, Craig. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. it's it's an impressive accomplishment. And as I say, uh, for any listeners who are interested in the book, visit the Movie Nights and Matinees website, go to the bookshelf page, and you'll find an Amazon link where you can order the book. Also on the screening room page, there will be a number of films and collections of films that we've talked about with these various stars that became popular under Hal Roach's tutelage, shall we say. And that brings me to the standard 
closing question for my guest, which is Craig, what is your most memorable movie going experience? I thought about that. I have two. Well, there was a movie going where I actually was at the movie theater and another one equally as memorable was in 1958. I was five years old and I remember, I'll never forget this as long as I live. My mother said, we're going to go see movie stars. We were living in San Diego, California. We get in the car. Remember my dad had a black Ronaldo fiend, I think they called it. We went to the dock. We drove our car onto a ferry boat. The ferry boat went to Coronado Island, just off San Diego. We found ourselves at the Coronado Hotel, the Del Coronado Hotel, this fantastic Victorian resort hotel, and I'd never seen anything like it before. We went down to the beach. There were cameras and tripods and equipment and a crowd of people on the beach. And I didn't know what was going on. I don't know how my parents knew about it, who they knew. I think my father might have known someone in Hollywood at the time. And I remember going down to the beach and watching them film a scene of a beautiful blonde woman coming out of the ocean like Venus, the most beautiful young woman I'd ever seen in my life. She came rushing past me. I know the spray of the water hit me. She ran into the arms of someone who threw a big bathrobe, plush bathrobe around her, and off she went. And, and my mother said, that's a movie star. Her name is Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> they were filming a scene from Some Like It Hot. Oh, wow. The yeah. mem memorable movie-making experience there. So what's, so what's the, uh, the memorable movie-going experience? Okay, not as pleasant. A year later, 1959... I was six years old. For some reason, my parents took me to the movies. They had no idea what the movie was, but I have never forgotten the, the nightmare scene. I remember watching another beautiful star. Her name was Elizabeth Taylor, and she was being groped by mad people in a lunatic asylum. Do you know what scene that was from what movie? It's not no? coming to no. mind. Suddenly last summer. Ah. Mm. But it, I mean, it was a scary, it was a scary movie. And up to that scene, that's when my mother said, I, I don't think we better stay to the rest of this movie. <laughs> Let's get out of here. <laughs> but I've never forgotten it. Years later, when I saw it on television, I said, Oh my God, there's that scene. I've never forgotten. It was from suddenly last summer. Sure. Well, at, on, on a lighter note, I did get to meet the author of that movie. Uh, Tennessee Williams. Mm, really? Oh, wow. I met a lot of celebrities in New York City when I was there back in the 80s. S yeah, late 70s through the 80s. I was uh, quite an adventurous character. With uh, That's a whole other story. That's a, maybe one day I may write my own autobiography. Oh, that works. All right. Well, Craig, thank you for uh, sharing your time and giving us the audible version of some of these stories that you've recounted in your book. Jim, it's good to have you in there again, backstopping me. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Contributing in ways that I couldn't. That's This has been great. So once again, Craig, thank you for joining us on Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you so much, Bill. And nice to meet you, Jim. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks again to you listeners. And in case I didn't make the point forcefully enough, if you'd like to get yourself a copy of Craig's book, 
100 Years of Brodies with Hal Roach, just swing by the Movie Nights and Matinees bookshelf page, where you can order it via Amazon. Likewise, going to the Screening Room page will provide you with a selection of Hal Roach films and collections on DVD and or Blu-ray, including the Laurel and Hardy First Year collection that Jim mentioned. If you haven't already, please hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen, and leave a rating along with a review where possible. On the website, you can offer up comments or questions via the comments link, which you can also do on the Facebook page. There's a link for that on the website as well. Well, that takes care of episode 15. Time for me to wander over to episode 16. You fool. By coming here, you put yourself completely in my hands.